Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. I'm glad for the opportunity to share on this topic or theme biblically, because these are days in which I believe the backbone of the church needs to be steeled and strengthened for what certainly uh, has, uh, has, has to look like days ahead that will be extremely marked by more and more rising persecution against what we believe. We need courageous soldiers for Christ. Uh, I wanted to extend this series a little bit longer Uh, Because of that very reason, I think it's a great need for us to hear and evaluate biblical characters who had brave hearts. America, for nearly two centuries now, enjoyed a certain level of protection by virtue, I believe, of our at least long-held respect for Judeo-Christian values. In fact, our Constitution ensures freedom of worship, freedom to speak freely, to assemble peaceably, And our Declaration of Independence states that we are created equal and endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. These rights have been in recent times, I believe, assailed, redefined, curtailed, canceled, and oppressed. Our neighbor to the north, Canada, is beginning to put some of their pastors in jail simply for wanting to meet. Arthur Pulowski warns us as he was being dragged off to jail. He warns us to the South, us who live in, a, we who live in uh, United States of America, he warns us, what's happening in Canada is coming your way, surely. Be prepared. Israel, as you know, if you follow the news, is under attack again. And it seems like the giants of fear are circling, even to some extent, winning the day all around us. What kind of backbone spiritually will be required as I was studying again that familiar story of this boy by the name of David and his battle with Goliath, I was reminded of how similar the times were in 1020 B.C. to the days in which we live. I thought this is a great corollary, a great connection point. Maybe it's time to look again at one of our favorite Bible characters. We've already looked at Hezekiah. King Hezekiah and his boldness, Jeremiah and Esther. Let's look again at this familiar story of a boy named David who went to the battlefield with only a slingshot or sling, and he teaches us what it is, I believe, to build a spiritual backbone in difficult days. We begin the study in 1 Samuel chapter 8 as a background. It didn't, uh, David's uh, courage didn't begin when he stepped on the battlefield for the first time. In fact, there's a really a progression. We see that really the call for courage begins all the way back in the heart of God and heaven above. And I want us to kind of evaluate the scene in which David was born, the culture, the times uh, to which God called this young hero. God's called us. For such a time as this, we mentioned that when we studied Esther. Well, let's read some verses for the context of the times in which David lived, or had come to live. came to pass, 1 Samuel 8, 1, when Samuel was old, 
prophet, priest, Samuel, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, money, took bribes, and perverted judgment. They were anything but uh, what the example of their father led them to be. And all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. That's never fun to hear, is it? Uh, my kids say that from time to time now. Dad, you're so old. Why are you so old? What happens? And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the other, all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. The Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. The authority of God was at stake. And they would rather have a king that was visible that they could see than an invisible God that was tabernacled. In the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies accessed in limit only by one, the high priest. They wanted a a leader that they could see like other leaders around them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me, served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Don't take it personal, Samuel. This is against me, this sin. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that, they sh- that, that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord and of the people that ask of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen, and some shall run before the chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands, captains over fifties, and will set them, uh, set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make instruments of war and instruments of, of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries, to be cooks and bakers. He will take your fields your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards. He will tax you, in other words, and give to his officers and his servants. He will take your men servants, your maid servants, your goodliest young men, your asses, put them to his work. He will take a tenth of the sheep, and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. And he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken to their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man to his city. Please notice the spiritual condition of the people, the land to which this little David boy would be born. There was a crisis of integrity in the priesthood. I learned a long time ago in ministry that the real problem with our nation is not our politics, it's not our necessarily our 
preacher, excuse me, it's not our, our nation, our politics. It is our preachers. It is our pulpits. It is our parishioners. It is the parents. It is our hearts. It is our homes. It is we who are those that promote the spiritual agenda in America that are at most at fault, right? For the conditions spiritually, after all, we tend the fires, don't we, of truth in this land. And the priests, Paul tells us that Samuel, sadly, his own children did not follow him. And when the fire goes out in our own hearts, in our own homes, our spiritual resolve begins to weaken. We begin to raise wimps and weasels, freaks and fools, spineless saints. And that was the situation. Samuel was a great prophet indeed, but his sons did not follow him. And so they asked for a king. Give us a king. They wanted a visible God, and not an invisible God, but they wanted somewhere a visible leader, like the nations around them. So God told Samuel, give them what they want, but tell them what they're getting. And Samuel does. He warns them, doesn't he, about what's going to happen. When you choose this king, this human leader, he is going to let you down. He is going to fail you. They chose kings, according to chapter 9 and verse uh, 2 at least, they, they chose kings in those days, kind of like we choose kings in our days. Give us the tall and the handsome. Look at chapter 9 and verse 2. This man Saul was a choice young man and goodly. There was a, not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders upward, he was higher than any of the people. This was a, this was a stalwart, tall, good-looking leader. Sadly, something happened to Saul after he was installed at age 40 as the king. Soon he became thin-skinned, hot-tempered, ugly, depressed, murderous, irreverent, disobedient, and just like God predicted what happened, the people's choice failed them. Is the majority always right? No. In fact, the Bible says something very interesting about Saul in the end of chapter 19, if you want to just page over there, 1 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel 15, the very end of that chapter. It's just an interesting comment. Uh, this is, of course, the context after Saul's sin. And the Bible says, Samuel came no more to see Saul in the day of his death. Saul would reign another 15 years after the anointing of David. But here's what God says about Saul. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Does that mean that God had made a mistake? No, God never does. But the life of Saul became a shame, a stain, and really you could say a foul odor or a stink in the nostrils of God. In fact, it made God's heart heavy. When leadership doesn't follow or obey God, it causes a great heaviness in the heart of God. God repented, was sorry, he regretted the leadership of Saul. This was the culture to which David, this courageous hero, would be called. I love this little verse on the screen behind me. Later on, this is a, I have a, a really privilege this morning because most of you know this story very well, but later on when David came uh, to 
the point where he would be on the battlefield facing Goliath. I love this verse. David said to Saul, let no Saul, this great leader who was head and shoulders above all other men physically, who was installed as the king who should have been fighting Goliath, said this. Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul truly should have been the one carrying the sword to battle, but he was one who was just like the rest of his army, cowering in the tents. But David grew up in this culture, a culture that was indeed uh, simply given to idolatry, given to wanting leaders of their own making and really wanting authority outside of the authority, direct authority from God himself. And so the Lord regretted that he ever put Saul in power. Please mark this, true courage is not found in what people might call bravado. And I I want you to know this because I want to paint a picture of Saul. Saul isn't, in in terms of his own courage, he's he's not really a wimp. This is a strong leader. Saul started his ministry or his kingship or his reign with a spirit of humility. He did. But he grew out of that and he trusted himself and his own sword. And there's an interesting account in the narrative in chapter 13. Let's go there, Samuel, 1 Samuel 13. I'm still painting a picture of, of what happens before we meet David, the shepherd boy. In chapter 13, verse 5, it tells us of a battle that is, that is really engaged against the Philistines, the arch enemies at this time especially of the people of Israel. Verse 5, chapter 13, the Philistines gathered themselves to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. Although there's some ambiguity about the number in the Hebrew, that's a lot. Whether it's 30,000 or 3,000, they're still outnumbering the Israelites by by exponentially. 6,000 horsemen. The people that were fighting were the sand which was on the seashore in multitude. And they pitched in Michmash, eastward from Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait difficulty, (laughs) the people were distressed. The people did hide themselves in caves and thickets and rocks and high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over to Jordan to the land of Gad or Gilead. And as for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal. He was trying to muster the troops. The people were following him. How were they following him? They were trembling. And he tarried there seven days. Two years earlier, Samuel had predicted this and prophesied, you ought to stay seven days till I show up, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him and Saul finally said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. He offered the burnt offering. The point I'm trying to make here, outside of the, um, the, the, the disobedience here of Saul, is that this man, even when faced, here he has two or 3,000 straggling soldiers. Maybe by the time we get to this point in Scripture, only 600 are with him. But he has this small contingent against this massive Philistine invasion that is staging right around him, and he's waiting to go out to battle against him. Everybody around him is trembling, and yet Saul 
has a certain bravado. I don't know how intelligent it is. He's got this bravado that says, we're going to do this. That is not necessarily godly courage. In fact, verse 12, when Samuel does arrive for the sacrifice, after Saul has already offered it in haste and impatience, he, uh, he says this to the priest, the prophet, I saw the Philistines would come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered this burnt offering. You see, from the priesthood to the monarchy, there's this sense in which God no longer is the one that we serve and love. Samuel's boys were going astray. Saul, in his heart, was taking charge spiritually, doing, usurping the authority of Samuel. And he, he, he kind of gives this lame excuse. I just, I forced myself to disobey. <laughs> what excuse does that remind you of in Scripture? The Scripture is full of people making excuses about why they can't obey. Remember uh, the great excuse, in the, like Aaron, I threw this gold in the fire and poof, this calf jumped out. I don't know how that happened. Or Adam, this woman whom thou gavest me. <laughs> to be with me. Lord, it's your fault. She gave me to eat of the tree, and I did eat. True courage must begin with a full reliance and longing for God. The case for courage starts with God's longing for a person who is longing for Him. In every generation, in every dispensation, God is looking the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. The Lord is seeking, seeking. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to find that one whose heart, the Bible says in the King James, who is perfect toward him. That, that simply means completely devoted to him. Courage begins with the heart of God seeking for a heart that longs to Exalt the glory and the power of God. And Saul was not doing that. Courage truly is a dependence on the power that is in God. The quest for courage doesn't start, as I mentioned, on the battlefield, the mission field, or college, or boot camp. It starts in the very heart of God who's longing. 1 Samuel 13, if we'll look at that, verse 13 You've done foolishly, Samuel said to Saul. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, a man who pursues the very heart and the purpose of God. And God's purpose has always been to exalt his own glory, not ours. God doesn't share it, transmute it. Translate it to us. All we do is reflect it. And Saul thought he was somebody special. That he would take over, usurp the authority that was not his. If you want to be courageous, begin to search and long for and desire what God's priorities are. The life of David teaches us, first of all, that confidence is in God. A heart that longs for God's purposes. Is your heart this morning consumed with what God wants? His glory, not yours. His power, not yours. You don't find confidence in a vitamin or money or a car or a sword or popularity 
position status. The essence of Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians is this, I'm not coming to you with brilliance or human wisdom. I'm certainly not coming with an impressive physique. Some say he was nearly blind. Instead, he says, I'm coming to you in the power of God. Dear friend, you represent Christ. Christ in you, the hope. Christ in you, the power. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29 reminds us further, God has chosen the things that are not to bring to, to nothing the things that are. That no man should glory in His presence. Berkeley translates it this way. I like this. God has also chosen the world's insignificant and despised people. Nobody's. In order to bring to nothing those who amount to something so that nobody may boast in the presence of God. God's glory alone. You want to be courageous? Take up that as your banner. I want to exalt the glory of God no matter what. So the source of our confidence, true boldness, is not found deep within us. It's not a journey within. It's not bravado. It's not squaring our shoulders into the wind, gritting our teeth, and saying, I'm just going to do the best I can. It is a complete and full reliance upon God and His, and His uh, agenda for us. Did we in our own strength confide, Luther says, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. So we see that the case for courage starts with God's longing for His own glory and for those that would express it and exalt it today. The Lord sought for a man after His own heart. The case for courage is built on two foundational truths, a heart of integrity and a disciplined life. You know the story well, so I'm at an advantage today. We don't have to read large portions of text. We're kind of reviewing and overviewing the life of this man. But I think the secret of David's great courage was both his heart and his hands. Let's go to 1 Samuel 16 and, and let's meet the boy, shall we? 1 Samuel 16, you know this story well. It's been taught to us ever since uh, we've been in Sunday school. And it is my grandson's, at least it has been, one of his favorite Bible stories. He's been chasing his mother around, who's here today, uh, around the house with his little sword for like a couple years now. Ever since he could walk, he's been playing uh, the role of David in the house. And Robert, or Whitney is just about wore out from being Goliath. But at any rate, it's been a story that's a favorite of Callan's. Well, let's meet uh, David, shall we? Last time we talked about these glimpses or character studies and courage. We talked about Esther. He said, if I perish, I perish. Not fatalism, but expendability. God knows who He wants for the season uh, and the times, and God's called us for such a time as this. He called David for such a time as this. And so and being kind of done with the, the life of Saul, so to speak, the Lord is searching for that one, and God, of course, knew who he was after and knew his choice even before Samuel got to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. But here comes that prophet Samuel, and all he knows is he's going to go and anoint the next king, and he's so afraid of Saul. If the word gets out, he kind of argues with the Lord a little bit. He says, well, the Lord says, go sacrifice, 
It's not uh, disingenuous to say that. And while you're there, pick the king. And so they go to the house of Jesse. You know the story. And, uh, and uh, there were eight sons in this man's family, and only seven came to the what I call the, the contest there for uh, among the sons who was going to be the next king. And it's interesting, the Hebrew says when Eliab came through, the first, the eldest son, uh, Samuel was so taken by this guy, his football cut, the shoulders, the good-looking face, the uh, attitude that he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is it. We don't need to look any farther. We don't have to ask about the other children, the other boys. This eldest, this is the one. And the, the Lord, I don't know if it's in the text or not, but the Lord whispers to, uh, to Samuel, hold on, not so fast. <laughs> he may look pretty sharp. He may have that walk of confidence. He may be the eldest son, but he's not my choice. Why? Man looketh on the outward appearance, but I am looking directly at hearts. God sees our hearts today. He knows exactly what you're thinking, where your mind is, where your heart is, where your devotion is. And it is as if, it is as if Jesse has forgotten that he's got eight boys. <laughs> Parents, have you ever forgotten one of your children somewhere? And he's left David in the fields watching the sheep in the wilderness and after God says no seven times, Samuel looks at Jesse, and, I, and I'm rehearsing the story, condensing it a little bit, but Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are here all thy children? <laughs> are you forgetting, perhaps, because God hasn't approved any of these yet as the king? We're talking at our luncheon with the uh, older guys on Thursday about this. If you have large families from a large family, perhaps you have been forgotten or left behind. <laughs> we talked to Brother Blake about a time when they had eight children. They left. I'm sorry to tell everybody about this, but I'm sure you'll get me later. But they left for church one Sunday, jumped in the family wagon and went to church. And it, was un it wasn't until they returned home where they realized that we've left one of our kids at home. And there he was sitting on the couch when they got back. It happens. It does. And I think the other day, I saw a Rossiter child in the nursery. I'm, I'm just sure of it. <laughs> Some of you don't even know that name, but if you're newer to the church, large families. And here he has eight boys, and it's almost like Samuel, where is, is this it? Samuel scratches his head, counts the numbers, says, oh yeah, there is one more. He's out watching the sheep. Bring him. The Bible describes David, not in terms necessarily of his physical, uh, although he's mentioned in verse 11 as ruddy, that's red-haired or suntan, bright-eyed, good-looking, but the real force of the description is his heart. God is looking at the heart, and Jesse, uh, somehow forgetting his youngest son, was not, or thinking that perhaps he would never make the cut, he's too young, uh, was reprimanded and chastised a bit. Bring him in here. I love the fact that when he got there, God says, okay, now this is the one. And it would cause all of us to wonder, what is God doing? And certainly in that room, the sons or the siblings of David scratched their heads and said, surely not him. Why him? And I think the answer, the secret is found, if you keep your hand here, Psalm 78 
Psalm 78. Let me just advance a slide. If you want to look this way, that's fine, or turn to it. From following the ewes great with young, this is a, a little descriptor of David. From following the ewes, these uh, female mother sheep with great, great with young, he brought him, David, to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel's inheritance. So he fed them according, and I want you to re- realize there's two components here. According to what? The integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. These are both important in our preparation to do great things for God. Courage isn't just, as I mentioned, something we womp up. We read about David's training protocol for fighting giants, and this is reflected in this wonderful passage in Psalms from following the ewes, female sheep, suckling lambs. God brought him to shepherd Jacob and Israel. So he shepherded that he 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 shepherd or tended his people as a king according later to, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Courage doesn't develop in a vacuum. He went to Heart and Hand Agricultural College, where both his heart and his hands were affected. His heart was tenderized. His hands were calloused by good old-fashioned work and defending the sheep here in the college of sheep herding, he learned the royal lessons necessary to be courageous and a faithful leader. God is building David's confidence, his skill, his backbone, and of all places, the custody of sheep, the care of animals. Not very glamorous, was it? Where is David? Well, he's tending the sheep, Jesse says. I spoke to some of our students about their summer jobs before they graduated here at school. Wales said, one, I'm helping out as an assistant at a doctor's office. But someday, he said, I hope to be a doctor. Another boy said, I'm working at Chick-fil-A. And he said, that's not all that glamorous. Ask Vivian about squeezing lemons one after another. One boy said, I'm washing dishes, waiting tables. And then they hung their heads as though That was kind of humble work that they're almost afraid to tell you. I guess I'm just going to take this menial job. Listen, shepherding was not anything about self-esteem. There was no bumper stickers on chariots that said, My son is a proud shepherd. Sheep were David's pupils. Lions and bears were his first enemies. The harp was his devotional pastime, but friend, there in the wilderness, God was forming a courageous leader. Don't despise the day of small things. In Sheep Keeping Class 101, he was learning how to pick up the harp and sing the wonderful songs and lyrics that later became, I'm sure, part of the Hebrew hymnal. It wasn't a diversion for him. It was a devotion. The daily battles colored his whole life. Courage was being instilled and formed in his heart. It informed his poetry, his songs, his alertness, his love for solitude, his time with God alone. Here his heart was fashioned into the stuff that champions are made of. A sixth grade boy 
this week as he passed the back two doors, I was there after his graduation, I caught him say under his breath, after six years of my life, all I get is a Bible and a piece of paper? That's what he said. Don't despise that little piece of paper. Certainly, don't belittle the Bible. And don't think small of what God has sent your way in terms of vocation. If he sends you, as, as I was in, in college, to the pot and pan room or later in life to construction. Often I thought as I would put up slung fire tape up in the uh, secret places of buildings, commercial buildings, where if I had died there, no one had ever found me for months or not years. <laughs> I wondered, Lord, why this? Why now? Why is this even necessary? Some of you were there. You're thinking, what is God doing? God's building, not wasting any moments, building your life. F.B. Myers writes, the moorlands around Bethlehem forming the area, the greater part of the Judean plateau are wild, gaunt, strong, rough. These make shepherds into defenders, watchmen, pastors, nurses, accountants, and warriors. Don't despise the little job that God has given you to do today. They called him out of the sheep coat, King James says, to come in. I, I imagine the look on his face as he came in. From watching his father's sheep, it was the job given to the least significant of the family. And he stumbled into the living room before the sofa or whatever, the tent. And Samuel said, this is the one. But it was the devotion of his heart and, the Bible says, the skillfulness of his hands. It is not simply a devoted heart, all full of passion for God, without the disciplines of godliness that are necessary for leadership and great acts of courage. It's a blessed combination of skill and integrity. The palace wasn't the first time he played the harp. He was invited as, as a side job when he was a shepherd because people had heard of his talent on the harp. He was invited to the palace to play. It wasn't the first time he played when he waltzed into the, into the palace. Everything you do must be seen as a preparation for future ministry. And David appreciated those early days. Courage is this dependence upon God coupled with this repeated discipline until it became a life skill. I have seen, and this is just in the for what it's worth department, I've seen Brazilian boys on the mission field take their slingshots, and at 50 yards, I may be exaggerating by a yard or two, uh, let's say 40 yards, I've seen them pick off little lizards off walls. And what they do, I've seen this with my own eyes, is they are so practiced that they can put the right amount of arc on that stone, and that lizard, well... He perishes. But these little boys got, how did they get, that's not the first time they did that. And I've seen them take their, their slingshots where there's a mango, a ripe mango on the top of a tall tree. And they'll shoot a rock up there and not the mango, they're shooting for the stem that holds the mango up there. And sure enough, I've seen them where they just peel that, that stem off and here comes that ripe mango. How does that happen? 
You say, how did he, how did he have the courage to go out there? And It wasn't the first time he swung that slingshot around his head. So here in the College of Agriculture, and I want you to... I want you to page over just to see his response, both in, in developing this courage, a case for courage, developing we just not only have to have a heart for God, a longing for God's purposes, but there has to be the disciplines necessary for battle. And so you see in 1 Samuel 17, 34, I think it's worth noting that uh, his response when Saul said, you can't do this, you're a kid. In 1 Samuel 17, 34, if you're there, it says this, David said to Saul, I'm sorry, did I call him Samuel? David said to Saul, the king, he said, you can't do this. Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, took a lamb out of the flock, and I went out after him. It's a good shepherd. And I smote him and delivered it out of his mouth, and when he arose against me, that's what happens when you take a lamb out of a lion's mouth. They come after you. I, I can just see this. I, sh- I thought about putting a slide up here but of a pouncing lion. And when he came after me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Now, we're thinking that he's a teenager still. So, you think you're a brave hunter? You've, you've got a couple deer from your deer stand? Try this. He, he has developed this defending spirit, this protective custodial spirit that says, you're not getting away, lion, with my little lamb. And so he tells the, the king this, you're asking about my resume, King Saul? There's nobody else. There's not a green beret. There's not a ranger. in all. There's not a, um, one of your top flight military men that have had the courage to stand up. Not one of them. But I want to tell you something. I've been in the battle too. I've been protecting things. God's been, God's been training me. He did not say to his king, King Saul, O king, live forever. I've never fought before in my life. I've been eating chips and salsa on the couch. I've been playing video games. But I think I can take him. I think I got this. No. There's a sense of true discipline in his life. The case for courage demands both a pure heart and a prepared life. And then finally, the case for courage must always rest upon a just and righteous cause. So many causes out there, but David knew that God had his back and had his hand in this cause. 1 Samuel 17, of course, is the familiar story. We'll not go into all the details. I'm saving the the message on the fight against Goliath for the next time around. But when David brings, as you know, the story told by Jesse, <clears throat> to bring the corn, cheese, and bread to the battlefield to see how his brothers are doing, he is immediately incensed by the defiance of the giant. The curses and threats are the first things he hears as he approaches the valley of Elah. And it doesn't set right with his soul. Teenager, teens, are you listening to me? He is only in his mid-teens, perhaps his later teens, and already profanity and blasphemy burn him up inside. As he's walking to the battlefield scene, it's strangely quiet except for the voice of one bellowing beast 
Goliath. And he's cursing God's people. And this bothers him. Look at verses 24, chapter 17. Verse 24 and 25, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? To defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and give him his daughter. What we know about his daughters, that's not much of a prize. And make his father's house free in Israel. This is basically, I think, the current platform of the politicians of the White House. We're just going to give him a lot of stuff. But what bothers David in verse 26, David's... Now remember, the, just put yourself there. This is a, a, young, a young man speaking to seasoned warriors who are shaking in their boots or sandals. David spake to the man that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? There's a cause that ought to instill courage and fire in us. God's name is being reproached in front of our faces. And what are we doing about it? Why should he defy the armies of the living God? Now, there is some concern about how that little phrase is translated when we get to that little discourse that he has, this exchange with his brother Eliab, right? Eliab says later on, uh, verse 28, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why camest thou down hither? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Why is Eliab so mad at David? Well, number one, David was anointed instead of him. But he says this, I know your pride, the naughtiness or the presumption of your heart. You're here Not many people at this point in history knew that David was the king to to succeed Saul. Not many. It was kind of a a kept secret, a family secret. Samuel knew a few others. And he is saying, Eliab is saying to his littlest brother, the sheep keeper, what are you doing here? You're just trying to show yourself and prove yourself as the next king. You're not here really to bring us. You're here to kind of spy on things and kind of make your name famous, aren't you? And I like the way the King James translates verse 29. David says, what have I now done? There is some ambiguity about this next clause or phrase. But is there not a cause? I like that because in the context, I think that hits the nail on the head. He's here. He's consumed with the glory of God, the honor of this this God that he serves, who's the only living God. And for 40 days... For 40 days, this giant who stands 9 foot 9 inches tall, sorry I don't have my stilts today, and whose armor weighs more than David, 125 pounds, just the outer armor, the coat of mail, whose spear weighs 25 pounds, who has to have a, employ a, or delegate a soldier just to carry his his, his spear, his uh, shield, is standing there cursing God day after day after day. And David says, isn't there a cause? 
Does anybody care that the, 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 the nation that represents the living God is being blasphemed, belittled, and, and, and brought, brought to a place where we are shamed before this one man? And David didn't care how big he was. He didn't. He knew how big God was. And so he says, isn't there a cause? And he goes to King David, excuse me, he goes to King Saul, who is, again, head and shoulders, the only really candidate that physically should be able to be out in the battlefield with this oversized giant. And he says, let me go, let me go. Later in the text, when he finally picks up the five stones from the brook and approaches this giant, he is so cause-driven so cause-driven that he literally runs to the battle. And I don't know uh, what was going on in the tents of all the soldiers in Israel as they peeked through the fly, that little slit, and he looked out and saw this little 15-year-old boy. We don't know how tall he is. I think he looked a lot like me. Same size, little guy running to the giant. Thou comest to me with a sword and a spear? Is that all you got? Is that all you have, Goliath? (laughs) I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. We feel sorry for that little guy with the slingshot, don't we? In his heart, that heart that, and that's a theme of his story. In his heart, he was longing for the glory of God, and he was fully confident in the power of God, right? And he is prepared in this college of sheep keeping, and he stands before this giant and says, this day... I'm going to take your head off. I'm probably getting into next Sunday's sermon a little bit. But he was not afraid. The text does never show that he's afraid. He doesn't crawl out there. He runs out there. And he's so confident in God's ability. In his mind, he's thinking, you're the guy, Goliath, that ought to be intimidated because I serve a living God. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for this glimpse of courage from the pages of the Old Testament. Thank you so much, <clears throat> Lord, for uh, the story of, it's a true story written in the Bible. It helps us understand that you're still searching for courageous, confident Christians <clears throat> who place their faith not in their own abilities, skills, and talents, but Lord, in Of course, the power that is in Christ. We are to be strong, as you mentioned to Timothy, and the grace that is in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that as we consider again the very components of courage, the case for courage, that you would give us a heart for you, a longing heart for you, your glory, to reflect your power. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
and make his face shine upon you.